Good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter to his problem children. He's going to deal with all kinds of problems. He's going to deal with church discipline, immorality, divorce, the misuse of spiritual gifts, false teaching about the resurrection. But the problem that he deals with first is the problem of divisions and quarrels in the church. And I believe the reason that he deals with it first is because of its importance. Not only to Paul, but to God. You see, unity is a foundational issue for a local church. It was important to God in Paul's day, and it's important to God in our day. If you've been a Christian very long, it's very likely that you have gone through a church split, or you are very familiar with a church split, and certainly you have experienced conflict in the church. Quarrels are a part of life. We develop that skill at a very young age, and we have a difficult time losing it. Friends fight, enemies fight, husbands fight, wives fight, businesses fight, cities fight, nations fight. You know where division and quarrels come from? Well, the Bible has the answer in James chapter 4, in the first two verses. In James chapter 4 and verse 1, James asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Pleasures, lust, envy. The basic root cause of divisions and quarrels is self-centeredness. It's the I, me, my syndrome. It's selfishness. Whenever you take two or more people who are bent on getting their own way, you're going to have conflict. And from the very first quarrel that you had in life over a pacifier or a rubber duck to the last quarrel that you had, the cause was always the same, selfish desires. And when we are born again, we become new creatures in Christ, but we also still retain our fallen, sinful nature. And so we have a capacity for selfishness, which means that we are capable of causing divisions and quarrels within the church. That happened in Corinth, and it happens today. Quarreling is a reality in the church because selfishness is a reality in the church. So I want us to pay attention this morning to what God is going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 10 to 17. And I've divided it into six parts. First, he begins with the exhortation in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. 
Now that sounds like what my mom used to say when we boys would fight. Stop fighting and just get along. Stop having divisions and just agree. The exhortation to those who are disagreeing is to agree. And that phrase, that you all agree, literally means that you all speak the same thing. Now what does he want us to speak the same thing about? What does he want us to agree about? Well, let me suggest at least three things. Three things that we as a church must agree about if we're going to have harmony. Number one, we must agree doctrinally. Within the framework of a local church, it's necessary that we all agree on doctrine. You say, but Dan, isn't it good to have one person teach this and another person teach that and some other guy teach another thing? Well, it is if you want confusion. There are seminaries like that. They teach everything and anything, and a fellow comes out of there and you say, what do you believe? And he says, I don't know, but I know all the options. You see, the teaching of the church is not to be a smorgasbord from which members pick and choose. For a local church to be spiritually healthy and harmonious and effective, there must, above all, be doctrinal unity. That's why if you turn back a page to Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Turn away from those who cause division by teaching wrong doctrine. Why? Verse 18, For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They don't serve Christ, they serve themselves. The ecumenical movement an honorable movement that says we want to bring all churches together. The problem is that the way that they want to bring all churches together is by let's forget about doctrine and just hug each other. Well, that's not unity. You see, unity happens when we get hold of the truth and we agree on it. Turn back another page to Romans 15 and verse 5. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord or one purpose you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're to have the same mind, the same purpose, the same voice to glorify God. We have 10 different opinions and 20 different agendas. We can't glorify God because we are going to be singing off-key. Now that doesn't mean that we have to agree on every single detail and the interpretation of every single verse and every single word, but it, we must agree on the basic foundational truths of the Word of God. We must agree doctrinally. Second, we must agree directionally. We are to agree to go in the same direction. You say, well, how do we do that? We are to follow the church leadership. 
We are to agree on the decisions made by the elders. You say, well, where does it say that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 reads this way. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. They have charge over you in the Lord. You are to appreciate them and you are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then he adds this, live in peace with one another. Those who have charge over you in the Lord, you are to appreciate, esteem highly, and love, and that is the equation for living at peace and harmony in the church. We just finished going through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. The elders are given authority over you by God. They watch over your souls. And when they make decisions, you are to agree with them. You say, well, what if they're wrong? They're going to answer to God. So we are to agree doctrinally. We are to agree directionally. And thirdly, we are to, to agree devotionally. Come back to 1 Corinthians Chapter 1. And notice again verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now that word divisions is the Greek word schismata, from which we get our English word schism. It means to tear apart. In fact, it's the word Jesus used in Matthew 9.16 when He said, You don't put a new piece of cloth as a patch on an old garment. Because if you do, when you wash it, that new piece of patch will shrink and tear up the whole garment. It's a word used in John 7 where some people were saying Jesus is the Messiah and other people were saying, no, He's just a man. And verse 43 says, so a division, a schismata, a tear occurred in the crowd because of Him. You see, Paul is telling us here that we are to speak the same thing and not to be torn apart from each other. And then he adds this in verse 10, but that you may be made complete. And made complete is a Greek word that was used of mending nets, mending bones, mending dislocated joints, mending broken utensils, Mending torn garments. He says, you're not to be torn apart. You're to be mended together. And how does that happen? Look at the end of verse 10. But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. You say, well Dan, I may say the same thing, but I'll never think the same thing. I may agree on the outside, but I'll never agree on the inside. Well, that's what these phrases are dealing with, the inside. You see, God wants us to be united in what we say and also in what we think and also in our heart 
attitude, in our devotion to the Lord. We see a beautiful picture of that in the early church. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. What a beautiful picture of unity. Where did it come from? They had one heart and one soul. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. At the close of that verse, Paul exhorts them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Be devoted together in the same cause. And then notice chapter 2 and verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Wow. You say, Dan, how could you ever get that kind of unity? Well, look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What causes division? Selfishness and empty conceit. So if you will not act out of that, you'll experience this oneness. And then notice what he goes on to say. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then in verse 5, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain that attitude of his humility. Don't act in selfishness, but act in humility. And what will be the outcome? Unity. So coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the exhortation is that you all agree doctrinally, directionally, and devotionally. But you know what I find interesting? If you look at this word in verse 10, I exhort you. It's the Greek word parakaleo. That means to come alongside to help. It's a word used as a title for the Holy Spirit. He's called our helper. And when it's used as a verb in the New Testament, it's usually translated beg or ask. When Paul wrote to Philemon in verses 8 and 9, he said, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Parakaleo. So when the Corinthians have divisions, Paul doesn't order them. He asks them. He begs them. He urges them. Why? Because you can't mandate unity. You see, you don't accomplish unity by barking commands. You accomplish unity by coming alongside and agreeing together. That's the exhortation. Second is the implication. You say, well, what's the big deal? 
I mean, why does Paul essentially spend the first four chapters of this letter dealing with the problem of division? Well, I think it's implied in the opening phrases of verse 10. And I see two things here. Number one, it reflects on your identity. Notice who he calls you as he, as he begins verse 10. He says, now I exhort you, brethren. We are brothers. We are family. In verse 9 he says, we have all been called into fellowship with Jesus. And so our very identity implies unity. And when we don't have unity, you know who loses? We do. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Well, guess what? When brothers don't dwell together in unity, it's not good and it's not pleasant. So the first implication is it reflects on your identity. The second is it reflects on Jesus' identity. Notice verse 10 again. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our unity, or lack of unity, reflects on Jesus. It reflects on what we call Him. Notice this. He is our Lord. Not my Lord and your Lord. He's our Lord. And we can't say that very clearly if we're fighting with each other. Romans chapter 15 and verses 5 and 6 that we read earlier calls us to have one mind and one purpose and one voice. Why? So that we can glorify Him. When we're not unified, you know what happens? We are taking glory away from Jesus. But not only that, our lack of unity also reflects on what the world calls Jesus. When Jesus prayed in John 17, He said something very interesting in verse 23. He was praying to the Father and He prayed that they, speaking of us, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that You sent Me. That's some prayer. Father, I want them to be unified and perfected in unity so that the world will know that I am who I claim to be. You see, our unity is a testimony to the world around us of the reality of Jesus Christ. That's why I love Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. It says, The early church was of one mind and they were taking their meals together with gladness. They had this wonderful unity going on. And then it says in the next verse, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. They had this tremendous unity going on, and the world recognized the reality that that wasn't natural unity. There was something real there about the reality of Jesus Christ in their midst. When we have splits and quarrels, in our church, we are telling the world that we are no different than they are. And they will not only look down on our church, they will look down on Jesus. 
So what's the big deal with disunity? It robs Jesus of glory. It robs Christians of joy. And it robs the world of its proof that Jesus is real. Thirdly is the confrontation. Look at verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, this is the only time that Chloe is mentioned in the New Testament. We don't know a lot about this individual, except that we do know that this is a lady's name. Perhaps she lived in Corinth and had relatives who lived in Ephesus, where Paul is writing from, or perhaps they visited Ephesus. At any rate, they informed Paul about what was going on in Corinth, and so he's not guessing about this problem. And then he goes on to spell out what their quarrels were in verse 12. Notice. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now they had divided themselves into various camps. One camp was saying, I am of Paul. Paul planted the church. He was their first pastor. I can imagine these people were saying, we're original members here. Maybe they were saying, we've always done it this way. Maybe they attached themselves to Paul because Paul taught so clearly on grace and freedom and liberty and they were really into that kind of thing. So they said, Paul's our man. Love to hear him talk about grace. Then there was another group that said, I have Apollos. Apollos was their second pastor. He was very articulate. Acts 18.24 says he was an eloquent preacher. And so these were people who were saying, we're very intelligent. Paul, when he preaches, pretty simple stuff. We like to listen to Apollos because he goes into the deep things. We carry study Bibles. We're of Apollos. And then I of Cephas. Cephas is the name for Peter. He was the apostle to the Jews, and so this was very likely a Jewish faction. And so they had brought that controversy, which was very clear in their culture, into the church, and perhaps the the, the Gentile group was associated with Paul and this Jewish faction was associated with Peter and perhaps also maybe legalistic in thinking because of their background and so they had this division among themselves. And then there's a fourth group that said, I of Christ. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But he's lumping them in with all the others in the midst of this quarrel. They were just as wrong. They were apparently proudly and piously saying, well, we're not really associated with any preacher. We're of Jesus. So what were they quarreling over? Same thing Christians quarrel over today. We have denominations today. The Lutherans are saying, I am of Martin Luther. 
The Methodists are saying, I am of John Wesley, who put his... his, Help me with that word. What'd you say? Methodology, good word. I don't think that's the one I was looking for. I have John Wesley. Let's leave it there. Do your research. The Baptists say, I have John the Baptist. Now, you know, it's interesting that the Baptists can't even agree on who started their denomination. So, So there's sort of a battle going on there. And then you have the non-denominational. I have Jesus. And I find many non-denominational churches are more pious and more proud and more sectarian. We don't even need you guys than any denomination is. In fact, I know non-denominational churches that say, we don't even want any preachers. We just throw the bums out. We have Jesus. Now don't misunderstand me. Denominations are not wrong in themselves. But they are wrong when you define yourself by them. When you say, I am a Lutheran. You see, we should all be saying, I am a Christian. And when you use that denomination as a wedge to divide you from other people. And then, of course, within a local church, there are all kinds of cliques as well. Can you think of any? I am of traditional music. I am of contemporary music. I am of hymns. Get away from me. I am of choruses. I lift my hands. I fold my arms. I am of homeschoolers. I am of Christian schoolers. I am of public schoolers. I am of the NIV version. I am of the message. I am of the King James version only. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. I am of suits and ties. We're becoming a smaller fraternity here. I am of shorts and sandals. Heretic. I am of John MacArthur. I am of Charles Stanley. I am of Chuck Swindoll. You know, the interesting thing is that Paul and Apollos and Peter were not divided. They were unified. And they were teaching the very same thing. You know what the problem was? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 3. 
He says, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What was their problem? They were fleshly. They were selfish. True spirituality produces humility and unity. Carnality produces pride and division. Which brings us to the fourth point. The irrationalization in verse 13. And I know that's not a word, but I like it. Look at verse 13. He asks three questions. Has Christ been divided? Of course not. We are the body of Christ, not the bodies of Christ. A divided church is a contradiction. Later in chapter 12 and verse 13, he's going to say, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We are one body. Ephesians 4.4 says there is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The Father is one, the Son is one, the Spirit is one, and the church is one. And then he asks a second question. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Paul says, am I your Redeemer? Were you purchased with my blood? Am I the one that you owe your salvation to? Of course not. And then a third question. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you identified with Paul in your baptism? Were you baptized in the name of the Father and Paul and the Holy Spirit? Of course not. You say, that's blasphemous. What is Paul doing? He's showing them how irrational they would have to be to try to support their divisiveness. And then the fifth point is the illustration, and the illustration is Paul himself. Look at verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now in Acts chapter 18, we know that Crispus was the former leader of the synagogue and one of the first individuals saved. Gaius is a very common name in the first century, but he's mentioned in Romans 16.23 where Paul writes from the city of Corinth and says that Gaius is hosting Paul and the entire church. So it may... This church in Corinth may have met in his home. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. You say, well, didn't the rest of them get baptized? Yes, they did. But Paul didn't do it. And why is he thankful that he didn't do it? Look at verse 15. So that no one would say you were baptized in my name. I don't want to be accused of contributing to your divisiveness. You see, this verse tells me that the person who does the baptizing is not significant. What's significant is the act of baptism in obedience to the Lord Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 4 and verse 2, it tells us that Jesus did not baptize anybody. 
And in Acts chapter 10, Peter at the house of Cornelius had others do the baptisms. And Paul here tells us he only baptized a few. You see, people probably went around in the first century and said, I was baptized by Paul. If somebody else could say, well, I was baptized by Jesus. Then the next guy would go, man, I only got baptized by Gaius. You see, Paul says, I'm thankful I didn't baptize you because you're all divided up around human leaders. And then notice verse 16. He says, now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. He remembers a family that he also baptized, the household of Stephanus, and then he says, other than that, I really don't know. Now let me add a footnote here. This gives us some insight into the inspiration of Scripture. Because the writer is infallible, but he's not omniscient. He's infallible, he's, he doesn't make any errors, but he's not omniscient. He has to say, you know what? I don't know. And so Paul here is our illustration. He illustrates that as a teacher and a leader, he made every effort to eliminate possible reasons for division by not baptizing very many of them. Which brings us to our final point, and that's the clarification in verse 17. The Corinthian church was having quarrels based on who taught them and who baptized them. And so Paul closes this paragraph by clarifying by pointing to the only thing that can eliminate division. And paradoxically, it's also the only thing that is worth dividing over. The only thing that can solve division, cure division, is the only thing worth dividing over. It is the priority of priorities. You say, well, what is it? Well, first he tells us what it's not. It's not baptism. Now, baptism is a subject today that causes a whole lot of division. Notice what Paul says in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. Now, some people will teach you that baptism is the priority. In fact, some people teach that Baptism is necessary for salvation. But this passage makes it clear that it's not. You see, if baptism is necessary for salvation, then how do you explain Paul saying in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you? It would be a strange statement if baptism were necessary for salvation. If baptism were necessary for salvation, then how do you explain Paul's saying in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. I want you to notice something. He was sent to preach the Gospel, not to baptize, so baptism is not part of the Gospel. It's something else. What he came to preach didn't include baptism, and it was the Gospel. 
So the gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. The gospel does not include baptism. Important principle. Now, baptism is important. Jesus told us, commanded us to be baptized. It's, it should be the first thing you do as a believer in obedience to the Lord, but it's not part of your salvation. And so he rules out baptism. And then he secondly rules out the preacher. Notice, he says, Christ sent me, I'm sorry, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then notice what he says, not in cleverness of speech. If you hear a preacher and you say, man, he's clever. Man, he's great. You know what? You've missed it. If you could go back to the first century and hear the Apostle Paul preach, apparently you didn't go away saying, man, he was clever. In fact, he made an effort not to be clever because the Gospel doesn't need to be clever. The Gospel needs to be simple. In fact, my cleverness only serves to promote me And Paul says, when I'm promoting me, I'm actually obstructing the real issue, the real priority that you need to see. And what is the real priority that you need to see? Well, look at the end of verse 17. Christ sent me to preach the Gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. What is the priority of priorities? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the dividing point. On one side, you have people who have come to the cross. On the other side, you have people who refuse to come to the cross. And that is the only division that really exists. And not only is the cross the dividing point, but it's also the unifying point for all who have come to Christ. Our unifying place is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't cure divisions by wearing name tags. We don't cure divisions by holding hands and swaying and singing Kumbaya. You want me to make you do that? doesn't solve anything. Divisions are cured when I come to the foot of the cross. Because you know what happens at the cross? My pride is broken. And my selfishness is broken. And when my selfishness is broken, guess what comes out of that? Unity. When we all come to the foot of the cross humbly before the Lord, guess what? Preferences about music don't seem very important there. Preferences about preachers don't seem very important when you're at the foot of the cross, gazing up at your Savior. Are you struggling with conflict this morning? Is there somebody or some group of people in your life and you're thinking, man, I'm angry at them, and I think the best way to deal with that person is to get as far away from them as I can. 
That's not the answer. That's a split. The answer is to come to the foot of the cross and be broken afresh. And let go of your agenda. And then, with one mind and one purpose and one voice, we together can give Him the glory that He deserves. I'm going to ask that we stand in an attitude of prayer in closing today, and I'll have the praise team come back. As we sing this course together, let's reflect on the words, and let's really ask the Lord to draw us to the cross this morning afresh, to break our pride, to break our selfishness, to break us, so that we can experience a kind of unity that He wants to see in us.